This is the journal of Sir Thomas Mitchell, Three Expeditions into the Interior of Eastern Australia, Volume 1, Chapter 2. We advanced with feelings of intense interest into the country before us, and impressed with the responsibility of commencing the first chapter of its history. All was still new and nameless, but by this beginning we were open we were to open away from any other beginnings of civilized man and thus extend his dominion over some of the last holds of barbarism. About a mile and a half below Wallamool, we crossed a small open plain and I was informed that Mr Oxley encamped on its southern side and had afterwards forded the Peel at no great distance from the spot. We crossed a succession of gentle slopes without any gully or watercourse between them. After travelling about eight miles in the northwest direction, we came upon the Peel, having thus cut off a great bend of the river. From that point our route was west, and even to the southward of west, until we again encamped near the river, after a journey of 15 miles. Some flats crossed by the party this day appeared to be the subject of inundations, it appeared to be subject to inundations. One gully only had impeded our carts. It was about a mile short of the encampment, and it was called Gura by the natives. It had evidently been long dry, had steep banks, and its bottom consisted of gravel and sand. The banks of the Peel thus far are composed chiefly of extensive flats of good land, thinly wooded and occasionally flooded by river. Only a few of the flats, however, are quite clear of trees, but where the ground is open, the soil appears to be rich and presents the same characters which I noticed elsewhere. We saw a numerous family of kangaroos this day, but although the dogs were let loose, such was the length of the grass that they could not see the game. The morning had been clear, but the sky in the afternoon was overcast by a thunderstorm with a strong gale of wind. At sunset, the weather cleared up and the sky began, became again serene. December 14. The sun rose clear and the party were in motion at seven o'clock. This day I discovered that the native had sent back his gin early in the morning, a circumstance which I regretted, for the woman had an intelligent countenance, and having been brought from the country towards which we were travelling, she might have been of service to us. When we had proceeded a few miles, the quick eye of Mr Brown distinguished the head of a kangaroo peeping at us over the long grass. When discharging my rifle at it, the animal, as he supposed, bounded off. But as I had taken very steady aim, I ran to the spot and there found, to the astonishment of our guide, the kangaroo at which I had aimed, lying dead, the ball having passed through the throat and neck. The kangaroo which leapt about on the discharge of the piece was another which had not been previously in sight, and appeared to have been the mate of that which fell. The distance was considerable, and the shot fortunate as being well calculated to strengthen Mr Brown's confident, who had confidence who had only seen previously the heavy old muskets carried by stockmen. He surveyed with great attention the percussion lock and the heavier barrel of the rifle, surprised no doubt at its superior make and accuracy. Our course was still westward, and thus we occasionally touched upon the bends of the river. Adjacent to one sharp angle, we met with a rather singular formation of little hills formed by projecting strata, the strike extending in the, distant, in the direction of north 30 west, and the dip being to the east at an angle of about 30 degrees. The rock appeared to consist in some parts of a bluff calcareous sandstone, calcareous tuff, and more abundantly of limestone of a peculiar aspect, 
presenting at first sight the appearance of porphyry, P-O-R-P-H-Y-R-Y, but consisting of a base of compact limestone with disseminated portions of calcareous spar, principally due to fragments of crinoidea, C-R-I-N-O-I-D-E-A. At a lower part in the same rock, less compact, I found beautiful chalcedonic cast, apparently of a terebra, T-E-R-E-B-R-A. The calcareous sandstone consisted of grains of quartz cemented by calcareous spar and contained fragments of shells of the litterina or turbo. There's a star there which says also a striated shell near to Buckingham Globular of Phillips, volume 2nd, 16 and 15. But Mr. Sowerby thinks it is different and more probably a litterina and would call it El Filosa. On crossing another low ridge beyond this, we descended to a valley in which I saw for the first time that beautiful shrub of the interior, the acacia pendula. The foliage is of a light green colour and it droops like a weeping willow. The bark is rough and the trunk is seldom exceeds nine inches in diameter. The wood of this grateful tree is sweet-scented of a rich dark brown colour and being very hard, it is, great request. it is in great request with the natives for making their boomerangs and spearheads. It appears to grow chiefly on flats which are occasionally inundated. During this day's journey, we also met with the Calatris pyramidalis, a tree which in external appearance closely resembles some kinds of pine tree. The wood is of a rich yellow hue, very compact and possesses a very agreeable perfume. It grows in the drier parts of the country. We found lofty blue gum trees, eucalyptus, growing on the flats near the peel, whose immediate banks were overhung by the dense umbrageous foliage of the casuarina or river oak of the colonists. We encamped on the river at the foot of a small hill named Perumbungai. In this very interesting position, I could at leisure continue from the hill my observations of the country before us while the cattle were at rest and feeding. The Malurindi had joined the peel about a mile above and the United Streams here flowed along a reach of the most promising extent. Mr Brown said it was so deep that the natives could never dive to the bottom. The ford of Wollombara, by which we would cross this river, was only a short way below, and the summit, summit of Perumbungai commanded a view of the country beyond it. The bank here presented a section of at least 50 feet of rich earth, and flats of this character, of more or less width, occur between the river and the hills. In the left, at the camp, I found a conglomerate rock consisting of water-worn fragments of serpentine and trap cemented by calcareous spar. The men were very successful in fishing. The cod perch, which they caught, weighing upwards of nine pounds each. With such abundance of fish and also kangaroo, I hoped to feast Mr Brown, but had, he set no value on food so common to him, preferring flour to all things else, while this was precisely the article which I was most unwilling to spare. He ate about two pounds and a half of flour daily, yet I considered his services of so much value that I felt loth to lessen his allowance, 
for with all he, this he seldom seemed satisfied. He came to me, however, in the afternoon, pointing to his protuberant stomach and actually declaring that, for once at least, he did not wish any more. December 15, to avoid as much as possible the heat, which had proved very distressing to the cattle, I ordered the party to prepare to move off this morning after sunrise. And while the people were packing up and loading, I again ascended Perumungai. The range we had crossed at Turi was near us to the westward, and a conical hill called Uriari in the direction of Chu was the most prominent feature in the southwest. The Peel continued its course westward, passing through this range, which presented a more defined and elevated outline where it continued beyond the river. The highest summits were there were Periguaguay, bearing west by south, and Oroga. Turiel, a hill still more remote, bore west-northwest, and between it and Waroga appeared an opening, which I judged therefore to be the best direction for our route after crossing the Peel, for I saw that it was impossible to pass to the westward of that range at any part near the river, but by that opening we could pursue the further course of the Peel as the nature of the country permitted. The land immediately beyond the Peel was inviting enough, one green hill arose from a level country which lay between the river and the base of the hills. The waters of the Peel and the shady trees overhanging its banks were visible for several miles, and the varying outlines of wood tinted with the delicate lights around which the deep grey shadows of early morning were still slumbering contrasted finely with the rugged rocks of the hill on which I stood, already sharpened by the first rays of the rising sun. This hill consisted of trap rock, the passage between it and the river was not very safe for carts, so we made a detour on leaving the camp and did not again see the peel until we arrived near the ford of Wollumbara, distant from Perumbungai, four and a quarter miles. The bed of the river here was broad and gravelly, and the banks on each side were low, qualities most essential to a good ford, but by no means common on the peel. Two emus... The first we had seen on this journey were drinking on the opposite side as we approached the ford, but they ran away on seeing the party. The current was strong, though the water did not reach above the axles of the carts, and by half past 7am, everything was safe on the other side of the peel. On quitting the immediate banks of the river, we passed through a forest of the trees resembling pine, calatrus, with bushes of the acacia pendula interspersed. There was also a tree new to us having a small round leaf. After proceeding six miles, we reached the borders of an extensive open tract named Malabar. It could scarcely bear the usual designation of plain, the term applied in New South Wales to almost all land free from trees, for the undulations were as great as those which occur betwixt London and Hampstead, and, indeed, the whole territory bore a remarkable resemblance to an enclosed and cultivated country. The ridges of the kind already described I observed in directions both with the slopes and, the, and across them, exactly resembling, resembling furrows in fallow land. Trees grew in rows, as if connected with field enclosures, and parts where bushes or grass had been recently burnt looked red or black, thus contributing to the appearance of cultivation. The soil was indeed well worthy of being cultivated, for it consisted of a rich black mould, so loose and deep that it yawned in cracks, as if for want of feet to tread it down. It appeared very probable, however, that in wet weather such parts of the country might be too soft for the passage of carts. 
I then suppose the ridge on our left might be called Hardwick's Range by Oxley, its general direction being about 20 degrees to the westward of north. We at length reached the remarkable opening in that range, which I had observed from Perumbungai, and passing through it over a narrow flat, we arrived at a low woody country westward of these ranges. Having now travelled 16 miles, I was anxious to encamp here, but we could not at first find any watercourse and one small dry channel appeared to be the only line of drainage in wet weather from the extensive open country of Maluba. It struck me at the time that much might be done to remedy the natural disadvantages, whether of a superfluity of water lodging on the plains in rainy seasons or of too great a scarcity of moisture in dry weather. Channels might be cut in the lines of natural drainage which would serve to draw off the water from the plains and concentrate and preserve a sufficient supply for use in times of drought when it would not be obtained elsewhere. We had followed the dry channel for about a mile and a half in search of water without much prospect of finding any when we came to a rocky part which still contained in several pools more indeed than sufficient for all our wants, and here we gladly encamped. The range no longer intercepted our view to the westward, and I lost no time in ascending one of its pointed summits named Idir, accompanied by Mr. White and our guide, Mr. Brown. From this hill, the view extended far and wide over the country to the westward. The most conspicuous feature in that landscape was a lofty, flat-topped hill in the middle distance, being somewhat isolated and on the western border of a plain which extended from our position to its base. The native name of this was Bonala, a singular-looking pick, some way northward of Bunala drew my attention. This, according to my sable authority, was Tangula. A meandering line of trees bounded an open part in the of the intervening plain and marked the course as my guide informed me of the Namoy. Now the hills I have just mentioned and the course of this river had been exactly described by the bushranger and the scene made me half believe his story. I determined to proceed to the pick of Tangulda, this being the course also recommended by my guide as the best for the continued pursuit of the Namoy. Liverpool Plains, which appear to the colonists as if boundless to the northward, were now so far behind us that their most northern limits were barely visible to the southward in two faint yellow streaks. The basin in which these plains are situated belongs, however, to the Namoy, which receives all their waters, and in the extensive landscape before me, there appeared to be an opening near Tangulda, through which the whole of these waters probably passed to the northwest. The bushranger's tale was that he had reached the Kinder, or Large River, by proceeding northeast by north from Tangulda. I then perceived only a few low hills to the eastward of that peak, circumstances which rendered the account of his journey beyond it also probable. I had scarcely time to complete a sketch of these hills before the sun went down. Mr. White took bearings of the principal summits and at the same time obtained their respective names from the natives. The range that we had ascended consisted of porphyry, having a base of fawn-coloured compact felspar with grains of quartz and crystals of common felspar. We reached the tents distant from the hill a mile and a half as night came on. The moon soon rose in cloudless splendour and received our particular attention, for we were uncertain how soon we should be compelled to depend on the chronometer alone for the longitude 
which thus far we had been enabled to connect with the survey of the colony by means of Barragundy and other hills towards the Liverpool range. December 16. We proceeded over a perfectly level surface, wooded rather thickly with a broad-leaved eucalyptus and the acacia pendula. The air was cool and a most refreshing breeze met us in the face during the whole of this day's journey. The thermometer at sunrise was only 52 degrees. After travelling upwards of 10 miles, we crossed the corner of an open plain and five miles further on we reached the bank of the river Namoy and encamped at about noon. This stream, having received the Conadilly from the left bank, had here an important appearance. Breadth of the water was 100 feet, its mean depth 11 and 3 quarter feet, the current half a mile per hour, and the height of the banks just above the water, 37 feet. The course of the Malirindi from the junction of the Peel to that of the Conadilly is somewhat to the southward of west. Below the junction of the Conadilly, where the well-known native name is the Namoi, it pursues a northwest course. The men threw in their lines, but caught during the day only two fishes similar to those we obtained at Perambungai. The alluvial bed of the stream consisted of marl, fragments of red quartz and other rocks. A very hard yellow calcareous, calcareous sandstone also occurred in the bank. December 17. Leaving the ground at an early hour, the party travelled for about two miles along the river bank, the stream appearing deeper and broader as we proceeded. Six miles on, we came upon a narrow branch from the river, which we avoided by turning a little to the right. We next reached a very large stockyard, which the natives said had belonged to George the Barber, meaning the bushranger. We saw besides the remains of a house, the ganyas or huts, of a numerous encampment of natives, and the bones of bullocks were strewn about in great abundance, plainly enough shewing the object of the stockyard and that of the barber's alliance with the Aborigines of these parts. The whole country was on fire, but although our guide frequently drew our attention to recent footmarks, we could not discover a single native. We encamped near this stockyard beside a lagoon of still water, which was as broad and deep as the mainstream. The water was nearly on a level with the surface of the surrounding country and was a obviously supplied from the overflowings of the Namoy, then at some distance to the westward. We caught some small fish, two of them being a rather singular kind, resembling an eel in the head and the shape of the tail, although as short in proportion to their thickness as most other kinds of fish. We found granular felspar on the bank. A pick of Tangulda lay due north of our camp, distance about two miles, and in the afternoon I set out on foot to ascend it, accompanied by Mr. White and the carpenter. On approaching its base, the bald rocks near the summit were reddened by the rays of a sun setting in the smoke, while the whole mass of woody hill below that summit seemed more imposing as it overhung a level country which had no visible horizon. We reached the top a little after 4pm by steep and rocky ascent, and although the atmosphere was dim, the view was very important. I saw the Namoy's course through a cluster of hills between which it passed to a lower country in the northwest. These hills were connected on the right bank with the pick on which we stood, and with a low range in the east and northeast, whose western extremities appeared to terminate on the vale of the Namoy, as far northward as I could then see them in perspective. The barber had positively stated that the only practical 
all way to the big river was northeast by north from Tangulda, and it now appeared that the lowest part of this range lay exactly in that direction. Some bold and remarkable hills appeared at no great distance to the right of that line, but the country between Tangulda and the lowest part of that horizon seemed so level or gently undulating that I felt it my duty before I traced the Namoy further to explore the country in the direction so particularly described by the bushranger. On my return to the camp in the evening, I made a drawing of the eelfish, which we had caught early in the day. December 18. We now quitted the line of the Namoy and proceeded in the direction northeast by north from Tangula. We thus continued our route in a straight line up a long valley until at 10am we reached the crest of the low range previously mentioned. The rock consisted of calcareous breccia with water-worn pebbles. The carts had ascended to the crest without difficulty and the descent to the country beyond was equally favourable. Halfway down, the dogs killed a female kangaroo with a nearly full-grown young one which she retained to the last within her pouch. The death of no animal can excite more sympathy than that of one of these inoffensive creatures. The country below, beyond the low range was more open for two miles, the only trees being ironbark. At 15 miles we met an impenetrable scrub of forest oak, casuarina, through which no passage appearing near. We were compelled, hot as the day was, to cut our way with axes, where the trees were smallest and least numerous. We thus cleared our course for a mile and a half when we had the good fortune to see once more an open forest before us, and after a journey of 18 miles, the party encamped on a dry watercourse, but without much prospect of finding any water. We carried 11 gallons from our last camp, but the men had already experienced the full benefit of this in cutting through the scrub during a hot wind after having travelled 15 miles. When the camp was fixed, I rode forward with Mr. White and the native and soon entered an extensive valley beyond which I could just perceive through the general smoke a majestic chain of mountains extending to the westward. I never felt less love for the picturesque than at that time. For grand as the outline was, I could perceive no opening by which I could hope to cross it. Our present urgent want, however, was water, and fortunately at a distance of upwards of four miles from the camp we reached the stream watering that valley, and which we thankfully saluted with our parched lips, its waters being cool and clear. Imprinted on their sandy margin, however, our native guide discovered, apparently with horror, the fresh traces of human feet. The tree bore numerous marks of the mogo, or stone hatchet, the use of which distinguishes the barbarous from the civil blackfellows, who all use iron tomahawks. Civil is in inverted commas. Although Mr. Brown made the woods echo with his cooies, their inhabitants remained silent and concealed, a circumstance which seemed to distress him very much. On returning to the party, we received the agreeable intelligence that some very good water had been found in a deep hole within a short distance of the tents. The supply, however, was not sufficient for the bullocks, which were consequently restless and seemed so much disposed to ramble during the night that two men placed in charge found it extremely difficult to keep them together. This difficulty suggested the plan, which I on subsequent occasions adopted, of confining these animals at night within a temporary stockyard of ropes tied between trees. December 19. 
We left the ground at 6am and in an hour and a half arrived at the stream of the valley which I now named Maul's River, M-A-U-L-E. Here leaving Mr White with the party to encamp that the cattle might be watered and refreshed during the day, I proceeded with the native and two men to examine the mountains before us. As we advanced along a rising ground, the native discovered a dog and on following it to a little brook we came to a fire with a large snake roasting upon it and a wooden water vessel on the ground beside it. The reptile was evidently the intended breakfast of somebody whom our approach had disturbed. Mr Brown soon discovered that the fugitives were females and following their track he found a bag apparently thrown in some hasty flight. He called loudly and repeatedly, at the same time tracing the footsteps through the long grass into a rocky glen, but no person appeared. We placed the grilled snake, as it seemed quite cooked, within the wooden bowl, and we also left a headband. Ulugur, which we had found in a fire, and we then continued our journey up the mountains. This range consisted of a different rock from any I had seen in the country, a chocolate-coloured trapean conglomerate. A very dark colour distinguished these rocky masses, which terminated in pointed obelisks or were broken into bold terraces of dismal aspect. In the little stream were many pebbles of vesicular trap, probably an amygdaloid with the kernels decomposed, but containing particles of olivine, also pebbles of a cyanitic compound consisting of quartz, hornblende and felspar, and a compact felspar mottled green and white, the green colour probably being due to the chlorite or green earth, and they enclosed also decomposed crystals of mica and hornblende. After climbing about one mile and a half, we reached a lofty summit where I hoped to obtain a view beyond the range or at least to discover how it might be crossed, but I was disappointed. Distant summits, more lofty and difficult of access, obstructed our view towards the east, north and even west. While the only link connecting the hill we had gained with those still higher was a very bold naked rock presenting a perpendicular side at least 200 feet in height. To proceed further in that direction was therefore quite out of the question. As we descended, we came suddenly on an old woman who, as soon as she saw us, ran off in terror. I ordered the two men who accompanied me to keep back until Mr. Brown could overtake and tell her that we intended no harm, and she was easily persuaded after a brief conversation with our guide to allow us to come near. She presented a most humiliating specimen of our race, a figure shortened and shriveled with age, entirely without clothing, one eye alone saw through the dim decay of nature, Several large fleshy excrescences projected from the side of her head like so many ears, and the jawbone was visible through a gash or scar on the side of her chin. The withered arms and hands covered with earth by digging and scraping for the snakes and worms on which she fed more resembled the limbs and claws of a quadruped. She spoke with a slow nasal whine, prolonged at the end of each sentence, and this our guide imitated in speaking to her. The mosquitoes tormented her much, as appeared from her incessantly slapping her limbs and body. Mr Brown's conversation seemed animated on some subject, but not 
as I at last suspected, on that most important for us, for when I inquired after he had spoken a long time, what she said of the barber and the way across the mountains, he was obliged to commence a set of queries evidently for the first time. She said the horses might pass, pointing at the same time further to the eastward, but our guide seemed unwilling to put further questions, saying she had promised to send at sunset to our tents two young boys who could inform us better. Even in such a wretched state of existence, ornaments had their charms with this female through the distancy of covering was wholly disregarded. Around her brow she had kangaroo teeth fastened to the few remaining hairs and a knot of brown feathers decorated her right temple. The roasting snake, which we had seen in the morning, belonged, as we now learned, to the witch of this glen. The boys did not visit us in the evening as Mr Brown had expected and he appeared unusually thoughtful when I found him sitting alone by the waterside at some distance from the camp. I was then making arrangements for carrying across the range the bulk of our provisions and equipment on pack horses and bullocks, intending to leave the remainder of our stores in this spot in charge of the two men armed, but of this measure Mr Brown did not approve. December 20. When the pack horses had been loaded and we were about to start, leaving the remainder of our provisions in charge of two men, we discovered that our native guide was missing. I had promised him for his services a tomahawk, a knife and a blanket, and as I supposed he was already far beyond his own beat. He might have had the promised rewards by merely asking for them. We had always given him plenty of flour, also his choice of any parts of the kangaroos we killed. It had been observed by the man that the intelligence received from the old woman had made him extremely uneasy, and he had also expressed to them on the previous evening his apprehensions for the natives in the country before us. I was very sorry for the loss of Mr Brown. He was very comical, as indeed these half-civilised Aborigines generally are. He liked to be close-shaven, wore a white neckcloth, and declared it to be his intention of becoming, from that time forward, in inverted commas, a white fellow. I concluded that he had returned to his own tribe and that he had been unwilling to acknowledge to me his dread of the mile tribes. We proceeded up the valley or to the eastward with the pack animals and endeavoured to pass to the northward where we found a valley in that direction, but at length it became impossible to go forward with some of the bullocks which were not used to carry pack saddles. The passage was almost hopeless. Indeed, it was so bad that I was at length convinced it might be easier to pass in the northward in any other direction than this, and that it would not be prudent to struggle with such difficulties and separate my party for the purpose of crossing a range which, for all I could see, might be easily turning, turned by passing between its western extremity by the river Namoy. We had now tried the course pointed out by the bushranger, and having found it wholly impractical, I determined upon report, returning to Tengulda and by pursuing the Namoy to endeavour to turn this range and so enter the region beyond it. With this resolution, I moved back to the depot, which we left in the morning and having reached it, made preparations to retrace our course. Mr White, following Malls River for some miles to the westward so we could judge of the direction in which it fell into the Namoy. This evening, as Burnett the carpenter was seated beside a pool with his gun silently engaging in watching some ducks, two natives approached from the opposite side to fill a small vessel with water. 
They looked around very cautiously as if conscious that we were near, but Burnett very prudently did not allow them to see. December 21. The whole party having started early, we this day reached the former encampment near Tangulda, a distance of 21 miles in seven hours. December 22. I set out before the party moved off in order to mark the line of route for the carts and to fix on a spot for the camp. I rode over firm and level ground on a bearing of 295 degrees, which I knew would bring me to the little hill observed from Tangulda, where the Namoy passes to the lower country beyond. The morning was so foggy that I could see none of the hills. The perfume from the recently burnt bushes of Acacia Pendula was most fragrant and to me quite new. At six miles, I came upon the river, which was flowing rapidly northward. Its deeper bed and sparkling waters looked very different from the stagnant lagoon that we had left that morning. The grass along the banks was excellent, and on the little hill beside the river hung pines in abundance. Lofty blue gum trees grew on the margin of the stream, and the place upon the whole seemed favourable for the formation of a depot, where I might leave the cattle to refresh while I proceeded down the Namoy in the canvas boats with the materials for constructing which we were provided. This river was the channel of the united waters of the Peel, Mulyurindi and Conadilly. Some of these streams traversed extensive plains subject to inundation, but the low rocky hills in this neighbourhood afforded perfect security. The country smoked around us on all sides, and the invisible blacks, the barber's allies, were not well disposed towards us, but in a position like this our depot would be secure. I accordingly made preparations for constructing our boats and launched them into the Namoy as soon as possible. With four adjoining trees cut off at equal height, we formed a saw pit and a small recess which had been worked in the banks by the flood served as a dock in which to set up and float the boats. We had fixed upon this spot because it appeared more favourable for launching than the higher up the river where the water was shallower and drift timber lay across it. The course of the Namoy as far as it could be traced from the hill was northward and in the evening being clear. I could perceive very plainly in the same direction the western extremity of the range which we so needlessly endeavoured to cross.